What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain jamie wheel is one of the most interesting dudes that i've ever met He's the co-founder of the Flow Genome Project, as well as the co-author of this amazing book that I just finished, Stealing Fire. I highly recommend the book, and I can't wait for this interview. What's up, my friend? Not a thing. Busy week. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're about to head down to the Psychedelic Science Conference, which is a propitious time for us to be having this podcast, because your new book, Stealing Fire, definitely uh, touches on a lot of the psychedelic elements. It does indeed, and this uh, that that conference seems like it's going to be a bit of a kind of national. It's like the psychedelics global. Olympics. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I went in 2013, and it just it blew my mind. And this time, I'm coming a lot more prepared, making a lot more contacts. It's really outstanding, and the advancements in the field, you know, from the scientific perspective of you know the clinical research that's gone on between 2013 and now is just staggering. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the biggest difference between five to 10 years ago to 20 years ago was there was a lot of well-meaning psychiatrists and psychologists, people in the helping professions advocating for the efficacy of psychedelics and other kind of interventions. And now if you look at the roster of who's speaking, if you don't have a PhD and you're not conducting clinical trials, you're probably not on the calendar. Right. And that degree of increased rigor and people coming at it from within the academic disciplines not from without and then trying to kind of cloak it or wrap it in you know this yeah because the the source of of information was it was from someone like earth and fire arrowid it was arrowid doc <laughs> it was like trip reports you know yeah. like that was the science in the earlier days even when i was starting experimenting i mean that's where you went to figure shit out it wasn't the clinical trials it wasn't milligram dosage just people experimenting and tinkering in that you know shulgin model which is something you describe in the book as well where it's just people sharing and open sourcing their experiences and helping guide people along the way but now there's a whole other subset in the current religion of the time which is science has mm -hmm. kind of uh, adopted this psychedelic tool and is bringing it to its ultimate potential yeah and in fact i think i just read this morning there's you know another interesting thing i mean you, you i know you're familiar with robin carhart harris's work at imperial college of london and david nutt and kind of the fmri brain scans on lsd and psilocybin and ketamine and that you know that was neat and they've done some fascinating you know they had some fascinating breakthroughs but what's also interesting is that the raw data they captured is then getting now used and redeployed and reanalyzed by a whole other chain or cascade of researchers so just this morning it was just the i saw the idea that um, it was measuring neural activity across each of those different pharma pharmacological compounds, the LSD, mm -hmm. psilocybin, and ketamine, all of which have very different interactions with the serotonin system and other synaptic pathways, and yet they all showed 
heightened activity above waking state baseline as far as neuroelectrical activity, et cetera. And in the past, all the research has only been on waking state as the baseline. Now let's see what happens when you're under anesthesia. Now let's see what happens when you're asleep in de- you know, fundamentally lessened states of consciousness. This was the first time that they had actual empirical evidence of heightened states of consciousness mm-hmm. above waking state baseline. And it was all derived off original level research at Imperial College, but now you have different researchers taking different cuts at things to add you know, significantly to our theories of mind, yeah. all based on the ability to put somebody in a given state via pharmacological priming underneath high-tech imagery, which is a really new combination. It's, it's interesting when you look at this stuff because you know, in, <clears throat> when you're starting to mess with these massive forces of the brain and elevate and, and get yourself into peak brainwave states and shift the you know, kind of the blood flow around and, and mm-hmm. change the way that the brain works. It works on so many different conditions. So the traditional drug model of you have this one thing that cures this one thing and that's all you get, that's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing, you know, these compounds that affect consciousness biomechanically through different means, but having just a whole downstream cascade of benefits that's beyond anything that we've known in the traditional, you know, uh, pharmacy drug model. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like the two predominant, you know, models driving inquiry for the last half century have been academia. I mean, the narrower and, and more technical you get, the more you're rewarded or don't get sideswiped by somebody else in the profession. And, you know, and pharmacology, i.e., what can I take to market and patent? So each of those has been overemphasizing and overrewarding, very narrow, singular cuts. Um, with different drivers. Can I get grants and research and get published or can I make a blockbuster drug? And to what you're saying, these this more system, A, a lot of them are well past their patent dates. Yeah. <laughs> so they're yeah. in the realm of open source. So there's a, none of the none of the uh, economic incentives. Are yeah, there if anymore. you look at cave painting psilocybin, maybe 30,000 years old. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <TM>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit past expiry on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this book is beyond, it's not just about psychedelics. It's about, you know, the term you call ecstasis mm-hmm. or ecstasis. How do you pronounce it? Yeah. I mean, I'm English. I might, might say ecstasis, but like whatever, whatever rocks your jam. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you describe that and you put this kind of broad, um, description of what these states are and, mm-hmm. you know, really catalog all of the different ways that you can get there. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, part flow, part psychedelics and part all of these different altered states mm-hmm. that, um, really, you know, you make a compelling case. There's one of the primary drives of all life, not only humans, but animals as well. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, is even broaching that conversation, the idea that, and this is, this is uh, Ron Siegel at UCLA's work, you know, he has a great book called Intoxication. He, he goes as far as saying beyond food, water, and sex, that, uh, that the, the drive in mammals and even many birds to shift states of consciousness is arguably our fourth evolutionary drive. And it serves this evolutionary benefit. Because obviously getting twisted and like falling out of a tree, that's not an evolutionary benefit. Doesn't help reproduction or survival. <laughs> no, no, it might In not that, unless you come up with some yeah. like fancy new outfit for Saturday <laughs> night, right? But, but, but what it does do is it de-patterns, you know, cognitive ruts and behavioral patterns, you know, behavioral systems. So if it creates, if it injects novelty into mm-hmm. the evolutionary thread, presumably that is the benefit because as you know, momentary intoxication, inebriation, incapacitation is clearly not advantageous. Something else must be, otherwise it would have been edited out of the gene pool. So the thought there is just to say, hey, if birds do it, bees do it, you know, psychedelic fleas do it, then what, what is our drive? This is no longer a moral argument about people in the inner city or decadent, you know, Wall Streeters, you know, doing blow off silver trays. It's the question is why do we seek this? Right. And how do we seek it both detrimentally 
unconsciously, unproductively, but and, and then and then it's potential alternate, which would be deliberately, intentionally for positive gain. Yeah, let's let's unpack because I think this is a really key central tenet that it is, and it's one of the things that came out of this book that it is an evolutionary drive. It's not just mm-hmm. something that's for fun. And so, you know, let's talk about the animal model first. So mm-hmm. we have dolphins who are, and a lot of people might know this, <laughs> yeah. dolphins who are gently biting a puffer fish to release mm-hmm. the neurotoxin that they get high off of. And then mm-hmm. they all, you know, sit noses up. And I recommend any kind of YouTube <laughs> viewing of this. They all sit noses up and they just kind of trip out together in a huddle, mm-hmm. like a classic, like smoke circle, yeah. you know? And clearly, and I just watched something on uh, National Nat Geo or something where you know, dolphins still get hunted by things. They get hunted by orcas and mm-hmm. they're not, they're pretty close to the top of the food chain, but it's, it's not to their, necessarily their advantage. They're not hunting, they're not eating and they're subject to potential predators at that mm-hmm. point, but they still do it. And this is the case across the board with a lot of the other animals that you mentioned. What are some of the other animal models that you mentioned? I mean, elephants it's, it's, getting drunk. Yeah, I mean, elephants will go into sort of fermented bogs and drink that. They'll break into breweries. Baboons in Africa (laughs) will will nibble on a boga. You have, I mean, literally, and in anything other than the Arctic and Antarctic, you have animals consume reindeers nibble nibble on Amanita muscaria up in the Siberian tundra. Um, Pretty much anywhere there's animals plus an intoxicating plant, the animals eat eat it on a regular basis. And that's one of the theories of how ayahuasca was discovered: is the jaguars would eat the bark from the vine. Yeah, but how do they well. combine it? Because if they, if they didn't have the right. MAOI, <clears throat> well, there's enough vegetation and DMT. You know, the theory is that there's enough active and enough both potentially endogenously Mm -hmm. and also in their diet Mm -hmm. regularly that it has some mild psychoactive component just by taking the uh the capybara even though Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the flood of dmt that you would get from the chacuna or the Mm -hmm. wambisa the opia or the other Mm -hmm. high dmt containing plants but there's a small amount in kind of everything and they're obviously eating animals that are eating the fuck out of those plants Uh as well so uh the theory is that they watch them because when they do eat that bark, you you tend to see this effect. Well, at least I haven't seen it, but they say, you know, the jaguars get like a little <laughs> lazy and a little, uh-huh. little like dreamy on the uh, in the trees. And so I think we probably learned about some of these psychedelic plants mm-hmm. from the animals. I mean, the aboga story that I heard was that um, it was a porcupine that was gnawing on the a porcupine was gnawing on the aboga bark that it was near a trap, and the porcupine ate the aboga bark. And then the chief's wife ate the porcupine mm. and then just started tripping for two days and had visions <laughs> about the weather and, and all things. So we learn a lot of our cues from the animals. But uh, to get back to the central point of, of all of this is that uh, it's you know the evolutionary advantage of the depatterning. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's something that I've noticed in my life. And I think we've noticed in a lot of the, the humans that have done the same mm-hmm. model is it just shifts your way of thinking about things, which can lead to massive massive advantages yeah and i mean and just to kind of roll it back so when we talked about ecstasis we said hey um, we needed a bigger tent we needed a bigger category to really describe the shared neurobiology of meditation and mystical te- mystical states smart tech dance ec- ecstatic dance movement flow states for action sports or athletes and and certainly psychedelic states which are you know as we've talked about have had this kind of renaissance in the last five to ten years um and what we found was that um, the ex- the state of ecstasis, the state of all these things, shared pretty much the same neurobiology underneath the hood. 
And that was a slowdown in brainwave activity. That was a deactivation of the prefrontal cortex. It was a shift from stress chemicals like norepinephrine and cortisol into kind of pleasure-producing, learning-enhancing neurochem- neurochemicals like, nor- like uh, endorphins and anandamide and dopamine and even tryptamines in some instances. And mm-hmm. that, that signature really was like the Rosetta Stone. You realize like, oh, wow, you know, like, you know, meditation was obviously for sort of pious and saintly folks. It was, it was monks and mystics and, and psychedelics were hippies and ravers and flow, flow states were action and adventure sports. And you, you could have those populations walk down the street and never give each other a second look. They were all very different subcultures, different tribes, different languages, different biases, and, you know, and different approaches to, the, to that experience. And then when you realize, oh, wow, we're all fiddling with the same knobs and levers, there's a shared there, there. That let us take a fresh cut at how big this movement is. And when we did the research, it was, you know, it was, it's the altered state's economy. How much time and money are we putting into just shifting our state, trying to pursue that fourth evolutionary drive, you know, is, is $4 trillion. That's, yep. That is a quarter of the U.S. GDP every year that we're spending just trying to change the channel on consciousness, which, you know, does, you know, give sort of proof to the query how how essential is our desire to shift state? Because these days, you, you were talking about, you know, ayahuasca culture is the water need, you know, any of the indigenous tribes that have made that a part of their world. Around the world, indigenous cultures have always been polyphasic, which is just the anthropo- anthropological term for like multiple states of consciousness, dreams, mm-hmm. visions, possessions, trance states, right? Ritual states, they all treated them as valid yep. streams of information, you know, post-French enlightenment, scientific materialism, those kind of things. We went to a super monophasic culture which was just 20, you know, like, you know, five senses, waking state reality was the only thing that was quote unquote true. And what we have found is that that's become a prison house. And so the disease, you know, one in four of us on psychiatric meds, anxiety, depression, suicide, all of the, you know, the, the diseases and deaths of despair that we're now seeing in the middle class, all these kind of issues, you know, can be traced back to the inability for us to turn off our self-consciousness. Right. And the inability to change that channel. So you combine that, our current contemporary malaise, where we've hyper-developed one channel of awareness with that force of evolutionary drive, the innate desire to, to try and change the channel. Yeah. So, so first of all, for people, there's a couple things to unpack here. First of all, for people saying, yeah, right. You know, that's not, ecstasis is not the cure. Probably my audience is all uh, for it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I'm probably, there's like maybe five, five new people who are like, whatever. Uh-huh. But, you know, we are showing in that same empirical model that, in multiple states, whether it's surfing to to mm-hmm. treat PTSD or whether mm-hmm. it's psychedelics to treat depression or yeah. all of these things that you mentioned, you know, are actually being treated by a variety of different forms of ecstasis. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's happening not just theoretically, like we're proving the model, not just anecdotally, but also clinically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting because as we wrote this book, we really made a conscious effort to have it not be sort of a substance advocacy book. You know, that's being done. There's plenty of people writing very intelligently about the psychedelic renaissance from Tim Ferriss to Michael Pollan to, you know, a bunch of other folks. We're like, that's done. That's actually not that interesting. What, what was interesting for us is to say, hey, the bigger, it, it's, the, it's the knobs and levers of all these approaches, mm-hmm. they give us all more access to shifting state. When we shift state, regardless of how we got there, we heal trauma in profoundly accelerated rates. We increase learning and creativity in demonstrable and measured amounts that are like 200 to 500%, which is you know off the charts, quite literally. And we increase connectivity and collaboration. And these are validated multiple studies, multiple different mechanisms of action. So now you suddenly realize, oh shit, you know, $4 trillion, big market, big economy. We're doing it, we're throwing a ton of time and money at this unintentionally, and this stuff works. So now what could we do if we reallocated 
right? How yeah. much time and attention we put on this deliberately and what would be possible for all of us. So let's go to the four different, you know, qualifications for ecstasy. Um, uh-huh. Selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. Mm-hmm. It has to have at minimum one of these different yeah. criteria for it, for it to qualify. Can you go take us through these different four uh, criteria here? Sure. So, so just easy to remember, the acronym is STIR. And the, and the first is the selflessness. And, and for most of us, that's the driver. And whether that's pursuing extreme like exertion through CrossFit or going in a float tank or doing whatever we do to try and shift states, for most of us, that's the first marker is that my inner critic goes offline. Mm-hmm. And I just get to experience the experience as it is without filter. Yeah. For We're, many of us, it's putting our, you know, our gowler, our prison warden to sleep, you know, yeah. the guy that's torturing us constantly and endlessly, that voice in the mind that gives us no peace, yeah. you know, and turns stimulus into suffering rather than pure stimulus. Yeah. You know, letting that thing go to bed for a little while is exactly is ecstasy. Yeah. In a lot of cases. I mean, for most of us, that's the whole ball game. Yeah. Is just getting moments of quiet. And, you know, whether it's a vacation, I mean, how, how much do we just, in, you know, intuitively judge a good party? Is a moment where I lose myself dancing on the dance floor and I'm not self-conscious. Yep. A good vacation is where I go from sipping a sipping a drink by the pool to actually relaxing. Right? I mean, we we, we really you you know a good family holiday is a moment where we get lost in the Christmas spirit or whatever the hell it would be. You know, so I mean, we really mark the quality of our lives by how much time do I get to spend in that selflessness. But on the on the biomechanical level, it is a it tends to be correlated with either a hyperactivity and connectivity in my whole self system, which just overwhelms my normal inner critic and processing or the executive function parts of my brain tend to power down mm-hmm. and that gets quiet. And so, and so that is, yeah, that's welcome relief. Um, the next one, which often happens as different parts of our brain, especially the prefrontal cortex shut down or deactivate to some degree, it often knocks out our time calculations because they are sort of a global average of a bunch of different parts of our brain talking to each other. And when that happens, plus we have all the attention focusing neurochemicals in our brain and I'm not distracted by my inner chatter, I often get into what researchers call kind of the deep now, which you know would be- The zone. The zone, I'm not thinking about what I have for breakfast and I'm not wondering about if the how, you know, what, what, how am I going to feel or what am I going to say if this goes wrong? I'm just in that exact moment. Martial artists, surfers, I mean, you know, you know, musicians, everybody knows that state or at least aspires to it. But when we get there, right, it's real, it's real time data in a present moment and the, and the gap between thinking and doing shrinks to almost nothing. And that feels awesome. Yeah. And, and then the next one, you know, well, you talked and you talk to people who have been in that state, especially, you know, I talked to a lot of peak performers and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I don't even remember that fight. Yes. You know, like I had to watch it to see what happened because yes. it's so in the now that even the, the process of cataloging the events and storing it in yep. short term, everything is just focused on the now Yes, and providing that, that feedback, that data is everything is allocated to that. And so they don't, they don't even remember what happened. You yes. know, like the, the, the memory recorder, the scribe in the mm-hmm. brain is just like, oh, fuck it. You know, all, all resources diverted to now. And that's where the magic is, pure magic. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's kind of almost a, there's a sort of secret brotherhood of, of people who experience that. Mm-hmm. You know, again, whether it's dropping into a big wave or if it's being in the cage, right? Yeah. Like if you know <laughs> what that is, then you have had, you've been able to reckon with yourself and, and life in a way that someone who's forever just skipping along the surface never touches. Yeah. 
you know, and the same, the same with, you know, special operators. Like, I mean, regardless of what exterior conditions you've sought or created in your life to get there, when you, when you're there, you know, other people who spend time there as well. You know, what's funny, like it can happen in weird, I've, I was an athlete a lot of my mm-hmm. life and I've also done all the psychedelics and I've, I've touched <laughs> all, on all. <laughs> Check it. <laughs> so, but for me, it can, it can show up in weird times. I remember I got in probably the most, one of the most profound flow states uh-huh. I've ever been in um was on a mechanical bull recently oh nice so it was on a mechanical <laughs> bull and it was a combination of really wanting to impress whitney uh-huh. you know because she was hanging with she had a bull rider friend who was uh-huh. there oh sweet <laughs> so, so it was like it's this combination of like me really wanting to impress her but and so the stakes were high it wasn't uh-huh. just like ah yeah. oh, fuck it i'll get on the bull like i really wanted to do it so uh-huh. i think in classic flow state you know having the stakes matter uh-huh. is definitely one of the one yeah. of the triggers and you know a really novel idea people watching and it was just this moment where i got on the thing and it was like all everything slowed down like i knew which movement the bull was going to make and which thing without ever having to think about it and it was just this pure state of relaxing it went way past eight seconds it was like 20 seconds and then i just threw like i like just jumped off the bull and just started screaming in the air. <laughs> it was like one, of, and it's such a silly thing. It's a mechanical bull, right? Oh, that's but, awesome. but to me, that was like I'll never forget how strong that 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 time went. Like, and that goes to the next thing: timelessness. Like yep. that moment slowed down to this pace of like yes, it was it was like I was on the bull for ten minutes, and I had so much time to react and so yeah. much time to move my body and counter react. It was really fucking cool and so random that yes. that was where it came about. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, you could make a case that, you know, you were kinesthetically paying hyper attention to yep. all the sensory inputs, but you weren't wondering what Whitney was thinking in that moment. You weren't no. wondering if you, how much of an ass you'd make of yourself if you landed face to Yeah, if my brain right. was activated, I would have been fucked. Brain, brain was gone and you were, so you were just getting, I mean, it's, it, you know, this is a, a cliche of agile business and certainly also special operations, which is actually delay tactical decisions to the last possible moment. So that you have the most information available. Yeah. If you if you may, if you do your five year plan four years ago, you're fucked by the time that moment actually shows up. So the idea is like to when we get driven into the deep now, we are dealing with the highest quality data possible to make rapid, accurate decisions. Yeah. And then according you know, like what you just described, like you got off and you howled, right? You were super duper juiced. Yeah. Like that's the effortlessness piece, and and the the you know because of all the pleasure and learning reward chemicals that get that flood our system to say nothing of the subjective relief of losing the inner critic and just the the, the hell yes i'm in the zone um it it's massively reinforces the desire and drive to do it again and in the case of super intense ones and certainly psychedelics are no exception to this it's not always like high fives and superhero powers sometimes it's the feeling of just being swept up in something way bigger than you know it's it's the not my will but thy will yeah right and there's a degree of effortlessness that happens with the loss of self-conscious executive function and control and those three, the selflessness, timelessness, and effortlessness, typically they all point to the final one, which is arguably the, re- the reason for any of it, which is the information richness that comes. Mm-hmm. And this is one that remains a mystery to me, you know, as far as like truly where does this seemingly non-ordinary, hyper-organized, incredibly insightful and perceptive information feed appear to come from? You know, we'll kind of leave that one for, yeah. for a subsequent right. exploration. But, um, and, I'm, and I'm, Sam Harris would kind of do a very, you know, a very clinical kind of neuroscience breakdown of a lot of this is just, you know, the illusion of and constructs of consciousness arising in our mind, you know, that kind of thing. But the flip side is, is that 
at a minimum, you know, we consciously process 120 bits to 150 bits, uh, you know, of information a second, you know, a second, that's half of it. You're listening to me and, you know, our retina processes up to 11 billion bits. So even if you say, Hey, somewhere between 160 or 120, you know, 160 and 11 billion is a shit pile more information <laughs> that's flooding past us at all times and just paying attention to a little bit more of that when we let ourselves get out of the way. Um, that alone is more than enough bandwidth to say that's that that accounts for all these supernatural experiences we have. Yeah. If you if you chose to take it further and you said, hey, also we are DNA and binary encoded information systems, and we can potentially the access whole body is receiving information. That, yeah, you know, yeah, and then we can unlock that as well. You know, hats off. And if you wanted to go full Rupert Sheldrake or Taylor Deschardins and say that you know, or Plato with the ether, if you wanted to go into morphic resonance field. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of any kind of metaphysical extrapolation that there's something beyond ourselves that we tune. In fact, funnily enough, even David Eagleman, the neuroscientist at Stanford has talked about our brains being sort of radio antennas or receivers for mind, which sounds suspiciously Sheldrakean to me. But, you know, like, so you've even got top neuroscientists saying maybe we are receivers and maybe there is an outside source of information. I don't have a particular dog in that fight, but I'm endlessly curious about it. And, and that information, you know, particularly with trauma and, and, and the innovation and learning and all these things that happen in these peak states, that seems to be the, the why which is we gain access to more information that becomes typically when we connect the dots inspiration. And if we put it on the ground in our lives can become transformation. Yeah. And that, and that three-step sort of feels like the validation as to why would we bother with any of this? Well, stuff. look, everybody who's accomplished anything, you know, artistically or been at their best, it feels like it's not coming from you, you know, and they used yeah. to call that the muse, you yeah. know, the muse came to visit me. It's this yeah. idea that you're more of a channel than you are actually doing the thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's an experience that we've all felt where we've just, something has come through us. Like I've woken up in the middle of the night to write a poem or write a uh -huh. post or write a, you know, for me, a lot of times it comes with writing, but yeah. it'll come and it'll just come through and then I'll, I'll just be the conduit. I'll just try to get out of the way. I'm just the clumsy, I'm just the yeah. clumsy monkey trying to put yes this pure truth that came and kind of downloaded into me into symbol so yes. that I could translate it out to, to everybody else. But it's a really powerful experience when you feel that. And I think for people who've never felt or experienced that, maybe that all sounds hocus pocus, but when you've experienced it, you know, then it's a different thing. And I think that's the beauty of ecstasis is that mm -hmm. once you feel it, you know it, you understand yeah. what that thing is. You go to Burning Man and you get it because you've been there and you felt it. Whereas if you haven't gone, you can't judge it. Yeah. You know, like I had a lot of different judgments and thoughts about Burning Man before I went. Uh -huh. What the fuck are they? They don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't there yeah. until I was there. And then I really allowed myself to experience it. Then you can make a call. And that's the thing that separates this from a religion of any sort, which yeah. is I'm, I'm going to tell you what's happening and I'm going to tell you this and you're just going to have to take it on faith. We're not yeah. saying take it on faith. We're saying... You can feel this. Like, All of us can conduct feel this. the experiment. Yeah, go yeah. check it out. Let yeah. us know what you think. Like, does it feel like you're downloading information from somewhere else? Does it feel like you're unlocking a part of your brain? Whatever you feel, like, just mm -hmm. go and and do the own experiment yourself. Yeah, exactly. And that's where we would kind of, you know, advocate, especially with the the psychedelic renaissance, is just a simple example, simply because so many people can reliably create an, a non ordinary state shift. And it doesn't require 10 years of meditation or a decade of martial arts training or some of the other more traditional uh, kind of lineage practices. So, excuse me. So what we're having happen is 
more people. You re- you referenced Arrowhead, right? I mean, more people are coming up with trip reports, coming up with their own descriptions. And so we're getting kind of a, a big data approach to the big philosophical questions. And it used to be some dude with his hair on fire would come down the mountain and be like, you know, I just talk to God, trust me on it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and if his hair was super duper on fire and he got a bunch of groupies early, you know, and it became persuasive, then he might start a religion, not just a cult, you know, and if he didn't, yeah. if he got killed in some spectacular fashion that advanced the mythology, maybe next thing you know, you've got a, a you know, a world religion. Um, but these days we've got this kind of agnostic Gnosticism, which is to say the agnostic part is, you know, Sam Harris 101, right? Don't believe everything you think, mm-hmm. but the Gnostic part is a direct experience of whatever the fuck's going on. And more, we're now getting to a critical mass. We're not just a few hundred, you know. Uh, people are doing it, but tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, I think what there was one research, there was an NIH piece that said, I think one in 10 Americans are now using psychedelics on a regular basis. And there's, their self-reported reasons for doing it are self-understanding and experiences of transcendence. So it's not even decadence. It's not like rah, rah, let's go party. It's that people are literally conducting the experiment for themselves. And when you do that, it tends to massively deprivilege demagogues and people who would want to claim the mic and say, here's my singular interpretation. You know, this is this is capital T truth. And you mentioned in the book the hyperspace lexicon, <laughs> which is where you're coming up with common terms. And I didn't even know this existed till I read the book, where yeah. you're coming up with common terms for these experiences. Because one thing I've noticed that's been really helpful is people know that I'm, uh, you know, I've done a lot of psychedelics, and I'm, you know, pretty aware of of what's going on in that space. So I've have. You know, it usually comes at weird times at night from weird people. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. oh, yeah, 1 a.m. from this guy. <laughs> all block cap text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, no, like, no. like, all right, I know what's going on. And mm-hmm. and I'll I'll talk to him. And most often, you know, some form of paranoia has set uh-huh. in. And it's, it's, you know, paranoia. People are out to get me this kind of idea of, which is kind of the risk of getting spun off. If you do psychedelics in the wrong environment, you aren't prepared, you're worried. You know, the fear kind of creeps in. And, you know, it's always it's always very comforting for them when they go, Okay, so it sounds like you're experiencing the classic. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I was like, this yeah. is the classic. Uh-huh. This is where when most people get spun off, they get uh-huh. spun off into this realm of paranoia. And it's like, uh-huh. it's totally normal, man. This yeah. is like, and I created my own term, which I called the classic, which, uh-huh. is, which is that spin out experience involving paranoia. And when they hear that, it really relaxes them. They're like, oh, wait, so I'm not the only one yeah. that this done? I was like, no, man, this is the classic. <laughs> like, you're experiencing <laughs> the classic. And then to have like a whole whole set of terms that people can experience and say oh okay this is where i thought i was king of the universe yeah you know and i was the most important being on the planet like oh let me look at the lexicon oh yeah that's described as this for like, sure okay cool you know and, now i can it helps put things in perspective and, and we tried to we tried to address a list, a, some of that in that last chapter on yeah, kind of the sure. user manual you yeah. know of just like it's not about you you know, like hypermatic yeah. egoic inflation, the check, you know, like right. don't fall on that one. You know, it's not about now. Don't get into this extremely false sense of immediacy and urgency that the end is nigh. Yeah. Um, you know, don't be a bliss junkie. Like once you've had these experiences, like trust that actually the stoic stuff, I mean, you know, our friend Ryan Holiday, right? I mean, the do that, do the hard thing. The obstacle is the way. Don't get, don't get suckered into thinking that life should always be about pleasure and indulgence and ease when actually there's this real, you know, there's, I mean, you said, you know, I'm just a monkey at a, at a keyboard, but it's like that monkey still has to train his fingers totally. and his mind and his sense of language to be able to try and bring that through with a maximum, a minimum of dilution and distortion, yeah. right? But it works hand in hand. Like the more you train the, the tool, it's like the more you upgrade the hardware, the better software you can run on it. Yeah. And, you know, so the more you train the body, the more cool shit that you can do with the body, the more that mm-hmm. I can learn a new skill like wake surfing, uh-huh. you know, a lot faster because I've trained my balance, yes. I've trained the proprioceptors, yes. my body is set and prepared for that. So 
you know, within the second, third time I was out there, I'm able to access these beautiful yes. states of flow because my hardware was ready to download that new software of how to, of how to operate, you know, and, and that's fucking makes everything so much more rad, but that comes with the hard work. And I think both go hand in hand upgrade and it's mental as well. Like the more mm -hmm. I upgrade my mental hardware, the more knowledge I gather, the more, you know, complex and cool these downloads can become. So I think that's yes. a really important message. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the more, the more we tend to retain when we come back from those spaces. Yeah. Because I mean, certainly like just even this concept of intoxication or sort of overwhelm. I mean, there's certainly there's substances like alcohol, which just flat fuck knock you out. They just poison your body and you end up <laughs> numbed and, and ataxic and all these kind of things. Yeah. But a lot of times with other compounds, people, when they sort of, when they get floored by them, it's often, it's not actually that the chemical is interacting with their system. It's that there's just too much information for their conscious state to process. So they almost go into a state of dissociation. Mm -hmm. They're like, and so they act all weird and goofy or they flake out on a couch or that kind of thing. But if you can clear that stuff out and you can actually get a clean read on the signal, transcribe it and then remember, retain it as you come back into waking state consciousness. Yeah. Your, your learning goes through the roof. And then like what you said about like about wake seven learning just becomes a choreography of data at that yeah. point I, yeah. I've, none of the none of the blockages are there it's like if i went you know if, if you and whitney went to learn salsa or something right mm -hmm. and you hadn't moved your body and you weren't integrated and you had like totally tight hip flexors and you also had a puritanical sense of your sexuality as a male and all these things you got some sexy little latin girl trying to teach you to swivel your hips you wouldn't know what the fuck to do right right and so your learning would be completely impinged by all these other different layered layered blocks but if you're free and easy and you're open expressing your and your vitality is integrated and then she's like just shimmy shimmy two two one and you know with a little thrust you're like got it yeah and that's a radical that that's when anybody talks about like the matrix training in the dojo you know uploading software or the little limitless pill i think that's what everyone fantasizes about that's kind of the boyish biohacker it's reality you dream. just have to put in the work yes exactly <laughs> you know because like if i've gotten better at two-stepping just being with whitney <laughs> which is right here in texas you know so and then that's helped my salsa you know, like, awesome. like when I went out to go do salsa lessons, like it was way easier because you learn how to stay on beat. You learn how to match steps to beat and yes. you learn how to hear that rhythm. Yeah. It's a totally different rhythm, totally different moves, but you know, you can translate that to dance. So then, yep. you know, and, and then with music too, like I'm, it's always blows my mind because I'm not a particularly talented musician, but it blows uh -huh. my mind when I see a good musician that can literally pick up any instrument, yes. but it's because they've trained the hardware yes. in their body to be able to say, okay, here's an instrument that makes sound. Let me just learn the specific software for this instrument. But I got yes. this whole database of how to run yes. an instrument. All sorts of like chunk recognition. And yeah, that kind of stuff. exactly. Yeah, and, it, and it feels like the continuity for me, like a, 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 the most embodied metaphor I've had is sort of whether it's music or, or athletics or, or martial stuff or whatever it would be, is just never lose the one. Mm -hmm. Right. And as a musician, you realize, oh, like when, where the one is in the rhythm is the further away, like the, the more I can hold that as a drummer or a guitarist and, and venture out and voyage, but come back and hit it. Right. The more satisfying that is as a musician and as a listener in, in kinetic arts and in, in physicality, it's, you know, as a snowboarder or a skier, can I spin a double, you know, a, a double cork and stomp the landing? The one is where's my center of gravity and, you know, and, and yeah. do I hit the landing? And if you, and the more we can play with that, 
And the same with psychedelics. I mean, the Grateful Dead were awesome in that respect because what would they do? They'd go way the fuck off the one, right? <laughs> and they would take people on these, that people, people could offload their consciousness yeah. into the bass lines, into the, into the polyrhythm, and then come back to this earthy, rooty chorus. And everyone's like, oh my God, I'm home again. That was awesome, right? <laughs> that was a 15 minute adventure. So yeah. you can go anywhere we want as long as we never lose the one. That to me is a really fun way to think about just playing with this stuff. Right. Yeah, that kind of that grounding, you know, when I've been in a in a place to help guide people through a psychedelic experience, I always mm. set like a grounding cord, which is uh -huh. them identifying and finding their consciousness in their heart, nine mm. layers deep in their heart, a single nine. white, nine layers, nine dimensions deep, nine Ooh. layers deep. Yeah. I learned that from Hamilton Souther. I don't know particularly why nine, although uh -huh. the South American shamanic culture has nine dimensions. Okay. And the ninth dimension is unity, singularity with God, or that uh -huh. you know, source, whatever you want to call it. They don't really care about the nomenclature. It's the uh -huh. all life, the all light. Mm. So I, I'm presuming that's why he chose nine, because that's our piece of the singularity. That's our piece of source that we carry as our consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. that one facet of the infinite diamond that we have. So that's probably why they chose nine. But anyways, um, <laughs> so nine layers deep, there's that point in your heart. And then, you know, like in quantum physics, the observer effect, when you observe it, it becomes real and then it becomes an actual point. And I'm like, feel free to travel wherever the fuck you want to go. Go down all the mm -hmm. wormholes, all the, you see a black hole, go for it. Like wherever <laughs> you want to go, you know, travel, but know that all you have to do to find your way home is just find that point back in your heart and you'll be back home. And I think for me personally, I do the same exercise. It gives me the freedom to explore wherever I want to go, knowing that there's this peace and an easy way to find my way back. You know, there it is. And that's the the kind of grounding point mm -hmm. that I think that allows you to experience all this. But if you lose that and you lose your point of grounding, you lose your, you can get kind of lost. And that's happened oh, yeah. in psychedelics. It's happened in a lot of different things where people have lost their grounding point and then they're wandering off in the ether wondering like dorothy yeah. how to click their heels and get back home mm -hmm. yeah philip k dick the sci-fi writer had a he sort of revived the term the chapel perilous um which was you know from the grail legends but it was the idea that when you're going to look for the grail castle you know only the pure of heart can make it to actually see the, the loving cup right but if you get lost in that chapel it's the hall of mirrors. So it's very mm -hmm. similar to tryptamine space, et cetera. And right, it's the bardos, right? You, you, you're, you're wandering. And, it, and it's, the, the advice we would offer is really similar to yours. It's just a little more somatic, which is just re like return to your breathing. Because often when people sure. are having a quote unquote bad trip or whatever they're doing, sure. quite often they're having a parasympathetic nervous response. They've got constricted, you know, mm -hmm. so breathing changes the wallpaper of your mind. Yep. And then you can be like, oh, so now I'm returning to breath. And then I can ask, now who's doing the breathing? Right, you can return to self mm -hmm. in corporeal form, and then you can, if you want to go back out, because you've kind of been like, "Oh, I'm actually in control." Then you can be like, "And who's breathing the breather?" Yeah. <laughs> right? And then you can go back out into your adventure, but you've just had a quick little huddle to get your shit together. Yeah, yeah. Breath is that. It's such a powerful tool. It's like the mm -hmm. rudder. It's the mm -hmm. rudder of our whole life, and it'll happen automatically. But the minute we decide to take control of it, then we recognize again that who we are. You know, mm -hmm. this force of life in control of this amazing human spaceship. Yeah. You know, and so that's a, yeah, it's also a, a really important technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patanjali, yeah. The, the founder of modern yoga, he, he said, it was a beautiful phrase. He said, breath is, our, is the umbilical cord to the universe. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so there's other areas here that you mentioned that may not be completely intuitive to people, mm -hmm. and that's sex. Mm. And one of the things that I've commonly thought about sex is that 
it is one of the easiest and most classic ways to get into this kind of flow state sure. you know state of being where you're out of your head now bad sex you may be thinking about all kinds of things you may be thinking uh -huh. about how long you're going to last and if you're pleasing her and that's not what or you're pleasing him or whoever you know whatever your thoughts are all of these things that can creep up in your mind that would make uh make sports not fun or make anything sure. not fun but in you know when you get in that right flow you know and the sensation is overwhelming i mean mm -hmm. you have the overwhelming richness of sensation then you experience all of these things selflessness this kind of mm -hmm. unity that forms timelessness you have no idea how long it's been going on mm -hmm. effortlessness it's just two people moving in unison and that's beyond just the i guess that is the sex so you know <laughs> but a lot of times people think about like just the physical pleasure of it but it's not just the physical pleasure it's the whole body organism pleasure that can come mm -hmm. from this act. And I think that's what, you know, the Eastern sexual mystics understood with Tantra and these different mm -hmm. things, how to use this as a vehicle, not just to get your rocks off, yeah. but to get your brain off. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is talking about anything, talking about sexuality, talking about, you know, drugs, you have to be like, okay, these are just blunt instrument categories that are so broad, they, they are useless. So, you know, with, with drugs, we're saying, we're not talking about white powders, we're not talking about opioids, we're not talking right. about amphetamines or cocaine or any of these things, we're very narrow and specific class of psychedelics and are they useful in structured, responsible environments. The same with sexuality, there's pre-conventional sexuality, just rubbing up against anything that feels good, there's conventional sexuality, you know, uh, you know observing social norms and kind of, you know, the classic kind of non-interesting bed death that happens to most long-term most long relationships. And then there's post-conventional sexuality, which is what we're, you know, exploring, right, which is, you know, the closest thing is that ancient Greek term hieros gamos, which instead of monogamos, which is singular union, hieros gamos is sacred union. So what happens when we can fuck each other open to God? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and isn't that a lot more fun than yeah. Netflix and chill, you know? So, <laughs> so, so that, you know, the, the French term, in fact, uh, Anjan Chatterjee, he's a neurologist at Penn, uh, was talking about la petite mort, the little death. Mm -hmm. And so that the French have an erotic term for it, which is literally the loss of self-consciousness blend, you know, blended with transcendence that can often happen in sexuality. And it makes sense that evolution would have stacked the deck in favor of go do this as often as possible. It's really awesome. So we have access to a lot of incredible neurochemistry, neuroelectricity, all these, we, we can shift our states profoundly and powerfully with you know, via sexual stimulation. Uh, Alistair Crowley, the kind of famous bad boy of Western sex magic, had a term called the bad boy of western <laughs> sex magic what a gangster yeah, moniker that no he was you want to know how gangster he was his 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 abbey of telema in in portugal he would be bawling one of his consorts um in one room high on hashish and opium while playing six simultaneous chess games with dudes in other rooms beating the shit out of all of them that's how much he was. <laughs> and he was a world-class mountaineer and he was an Oxford poet I mean, and, and writer. I mean, maybe let the chess go when you're fucking Exactly. Somebody. It's like, hey, I who don't knows? Know. Rook, rook, rook three to pawn two. I don't know. Who cares a shit? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so the point being, you know, er, his term erotocomatose lucidity is literally, um, you know, it's just a fancy way of saying fucking your brains out. Mm -hmm. Can you prolong sexual stimulation for long enough to completely saturate and shut down all waking state awareness? And then can you create access to different domains or realms? Now, for those guys, they would then enact a bunch of Western magical programs. You know, they, they would kind of run those programs and see what they could do in that space. You know, for average couples, it could just be, hey, do we have access to higher, clearer, more interesting aspects of ourselves and our lives and our relationships? But it's, it's super possible. And, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is just, 
in the last 10 years, especially like 50 shades of gray is just a touch point. But I mean, that, that son of a bitch book, which is just so badly written. It's so bad. So terrible. It's not even, it's not good erotica <laughs> period. Never, never no. mind whether you like erotica or not, but it's sold more copies than the entire Harry Potter series combined, which would suggest, I remember like, si- what the fuck. I remember sitting on a plane and when it was really just mm-hmm. burst into popularity and there's five women around me, unrelated, uh-huh. all reading it. And oh, I was yeah. like, Oh damn. Oh yeah. This is a thing. I was in line, I was lying at Chipotle and, and I look over and there's this woman sitting in a booth with her Kindle and she's totally reading it. And I'm like, I'm like, she <laughs> thinks she's being stealthy, but she's like moisty at lunch. And I'm like, you naughty, naughty girl. You know, like, it's hilarious. Well, it's it's interesting because these things, you know, they were considered considered like, and I think you mentioned this in the book as well, but they were considered a form of of deviant psychological uh-huh. behavior that was uh-huh. like pathological. You know, yeah. any form of power exchange, any uh-huh. form of submissive dominant behavior was mm-hmm. and then you know real psychologists kind of figured shit out and they're like oh no wait a minute this is just two people tweaking these knobs and levers as you like to call them yeah. in favorable ways and using different tools um to get there yeah exactly i mean i mean obviously sexual arousal is its own natural arc and then if you stack it and add to it with pleasure pain with uncertainty and teasing with you know a host of other things to say nothing of like stimulating your vagal nerve and producing spikes in oxytocin through nipple stimulation and there's i mean there's a thousand and one things you're like oh shit i used to think this was all about me making love to you and this is all egoic and identity based and you know pride and fear and shame and all that kind of stuff if you move beyond that and you're like hey we're prefrontal cortexes connected to spinal columns connected to erogenous zones Right, yeah, and yeah. let's just take turns playing each other like instruments and slingshotting each other into the back of beyond. Then you're into some super fun space, yeah. and there's you know, and then you're and then you're no longer like, is this a pretty young thing to devote or distract me for a day or a week? It's like, is this a is this a high altitude mountaineering partner? Is this the person that I can actually go the distance and stand on top of the world with? And that's a fundamentally different relationship to relationship. It's so funny how we have so many of these buttons that we can press, mm-hmm. but there's taboos that have shrouded so many of them and it's so crazy that we don't actually press them like oh no we can't do that you know mm-hmm. like oh spanking and and you know clamps and oh, oh no no uh-huh. it's like well have you pressed the buttons like yeah. do you yeah. know it's like you got to download a new video game and you're like no no don't press that one it'll, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you don't want to do you don't want to see what happens when you do that one of course you press the button if it's a video <laughs> game but we, we're living in this better than any video game that we can ever create but we don't press our buttons and at least see like all right you know what happens when you press this button obviously don't press the ones that are going to permanently change the game yeah like press the you know uh-huh. shoot yourself in the face button yeah but like you know see what see what all of these things can actually do and you'll be surprised surprised at the at the benefit and surprised by making your own judgments and assessments rather than just taking what society or your friends or your parents or whatever would think like press the buttons yourself figure it out yeah, and that, I mean, that brings it back to you because invariably, you know, in a book where we're just kind of laying out the facts and the research, um, we get a lot of people like, ooh, wow, that's kind of edgy or ooh, wow, not sure about this. And it's like, look, that four trillion bucks, we're already doing it. We're, yeah. just, we're, just, we're just monkeys throwing shit at each other and smashing the keyboards hoping to come up with some poetry, you yeah. know, and you're like, hey, all we're saying is here's syntax, here's grammar, and here's a potential way to sequence these things together in ways that deeply serve are profoundly ethical, grounded and responsible, right? And we could do all this stuff on purpose. And, it, and strangely, what we've, what we've noticed, and this is even with friends to say nothing of like colleagues and just general readers is, there are so many people that play in the realm of seeking ecstasis, seeking sexual experience, seeking chemically enhanced experience, seeking other state experiences. And they do it, but they haven't actually clarified their own 
their social norms and moral codes. So they, they, they color outside their own lines. They didn't erase the lines. And so, you know, like a friend of ours who's, this, who's a devout Catholic who would just go out and whore like with the best of them and get hammered <laughs> and all these things. And he, and he, but he would still be funny. He, he hadn't undone yeah. his Catholic encoding. He just ignored it until Wednesday confession and then felt horrible, right? <laughs> and you're like, dude, what is that? So there are people that go to Burning Man and, and do every substance under the sun, but they're not doing it intelligently. They're not right. doing it in service of So you're like, I don't, that always baffles me is that, well, people will go seeking these things but they haven't actually examined their own belief systems and, and the sort of societal super or ego stuff. Or they'll wait till they're drunk to do it. Yes. You know, like they really want to explore their sexuality, but they have to get hammered to give themselves permission to do it because yep. of some judgment they would have or they you know, take some judgment that their friend group, their peer group, their parent group, their religious mm -hmm. beliefs would have and they internalize that. And so by getting drunk, it gives them the permission yep. you know, to do these things. But then drunk, Sex is, is diminishing. It's like dampening the lights yes. on everything that you could be experiencing anyways. You know? yeah. So it's, they're almost you know, sacrificing a great amount of the experience in order to give themselves permission. Just fucking give yourself permission out of the gate. Is it yeah. gonna harm anybody else? No. All right. Is yeah. it going to harm you? No. Okay. Fucking try it, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, like Exa yeah, experiment. Yeah. And, and, and exactly. Because when, you know, when people say, oh, well, I have to get drunk in order to have some kind of, you know, freer or wilder sex, or then I, it's late night and that's when we pop whatever pills going around because we're finally, you know, just no inhibitions. So you've got two or three sort of crossing the line movements. And then you actually instead say, well, hey, what if you put all, what if you put seven of them together? What <laughs> if you, right? <laughs> what if you combine like super conscious psychedelics, absolutely, you know, kinky sex, badass music and movement. And people were like, oh no, shit, that's off the chain. That is so debauched. And you're like, no, no, it's not debauched. Just because you <laughs> did the first two or three unconsciously doesn't mean yeah. if you did all seven on purpose, that makes it twice as, twice as nasty. It could be completely clear, right. like Jedi gameplay. Yeah. But most folks still have social judgment, morality, and shame that's way deep in their code base that they never bothered to examine or pull out. I think one of the things that helps with that is the materialist reductionist approach. Like, let's mm -hmm. go back to kinky sex and the power exchange dynamic. Mm -hmm. The people who are in a more dominant role, they'll experience more of like the classic flow state, you know, mm -hmm. like in the, in the kind of master submissive uh -huh. case, whereas the submissive will experience transient hypofrontality uh -huh. similar uh -huh. but different but you can actually you know there's been studies showing these two different states that people are achieving and then the effects which you could probably describe a lot better than me of mm -hmm. what those two things mean but it's actually mm -hmm. causing neurochemistry to shift in the body sure so you're not looking at it like with the label and the symbol oh this is kinky deviant whatever you're like oh i'm just getting my brain into flow state or transient mm -hmm. hypofrontality and that state itself is extremely pleasurable on top of sexual stimulation which is also extremely pleasurable so you have mm -hmm. this natural stack of mm -hmm. two extremely pleasurable things that overlay yep and then yeah as you said maybe bring another kind of you know substance on board too and then you have this triple stack with yeah. some great music yeah. oh shit <laughs> oh shit and some Here cool lighting in your yep. bedroom oh next shit. thing you know it's a magic copyright yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next thing you know you're like alistair crowley yeah absolutely yeah. and and you know, and, and for the last 10 years, I mean, even longer than that, really, I would say my whole kind of adult life, I've just been sussing out these ecstatic subcultures and like just who's got it going on. And, you know, and, and for one, you know, for one, there was the whole, the, the Grateful Dead shows. You're like, okay, you know, the bumper stickers you'd see, like there's, you know, um, only a deadhead knows the feeling, like, which is almost identical to like only a surfer knows. The, so there was clearly, you know, Bill Moyers had those guys on PBS said they're a modern day, right? So you're like, okay. 
So something goes on in the second set of those shows, not every time, but sometimes, and it's powerful enough that it prompts lots of people to like pick up sticks and follow them around the country. Yeah. Okay, interesting data point. Surfers getting barreled in the green room. Why do guys just build their lives around being available for surf break? What is that moment in the green rooms? You know, skiers and snowboarders. The what green is room, that is. Be, being in a tube, yeah. right? And what is that moment of looking out at the setting sun as you're going straight down a glossy barrel and you're consumed by the wave and yet part of it and yet not, right? Like yeah. that moment, bottomless powders, 3D skiing. I don't know, because I can't surf that good, but no, exactly. I'd fucking love to know. Right, and the same and the same when, you know, just just reading accounts of BDSM and, you're, and they're talking about subspace. And I'm like, oh, okay, I bet. Like, I don't know anything about this, yeah. but they've got something going on. They've even got a name for it. And that's almost one of the keys. Like you said, the, the classic, you know, for, mm-hmm. for the guy having a bad trip. When you realize that a community or practice, A, there is a community around it. It's tight enough to create that. B, people make willing trade-offs against normal social ladder kind of shit to do the thing and then see they've got a name for that place that they seek you're like okay those guys are probably into the pudding in some shape or form that's worthy of further investigation i have to say though as open as i am to all of these different things as many buttons as i've Mm -hmm. pressed i still have my own limitations and taboos that i could transcend as well like for me taking the submissive role in a Mm -hmm. sexual encounter Mm -hmm. is so counterintuitive and i think goes against not only my natural inclination, uh-huh. but my idea of myself. Oh, for sure. Right? So that, and I know in my head, and my friend, I've had friends who've talked to me like uh, about this and be like, uh-huh. man, you should you should give it a go. You should try it at least. Uh-huh. And I'm, philosophically, I 100% agree. Like, uh-huh. yeah, for sure I should put on a dog leash and have someone <laughs> oh, with <shit>. me <laughs> and, figure, and figure it out. Like, for sure I should. If, uh-huh. I'm, if I'm gonna be there, and saying like, yeah, you know, press all the buttons, see what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Like I should be able to press that button, but man, yeah. I'm hesitant. Yeah, <laughs> press that button. I'm yeah. hesitant and, and it's silly and I should probably just transcend it and do it, you know, well, and just see and just see what it is and realize that I'm going to be okay. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's going to be all right. I mean, I mean, David Data, right? Famously said, you got to be able to take it up the ass to know God. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but if you put that, I mean, other than him being like provocative Tantra guy, um, you know, Joseph Campbell, right? I mean, the later stages of the hero's journey, because most people just know that on the most superficial level, but like one of them after like woman is temptress. So you don't get d- distorted by feminine sucker, you know, like either sexy women or weed or whatever it would be, like go back into the womb space. Then, you know, the reconciliation with the father, Luke and Beta. But then after all that is the sacred androgyne. And that's the androgynous one, right? That's the Vitruvian man that is integrating in the masculine and the feminine. So yeah, absolutely. Like like you, I would imagine, you clearly you've developed and cultivated lots of the masculine ascendant, yeah. right? And what is the receptive feminine to balance it? And what does that do to our nervous system, our circuitry and our psyche? Yep is potentially rich terrain, even if it would be the last thing either of us would sign up for, you know? (laughs) Right. So, but, you know, and I guess that it's a good point to have that, you know, when you're talking to people who are really hesitant to do anything, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's important for me to remind myself like, all right, there's still mind forbidden territory for me to transcend and overcome. So Mm -hmm. don't get all high and mighty and say, look at me, I pressed all the buttons. Look at you, you're all repressed. Like we all have our own areas. We all have our own struggles that we have with this. And it's important to remember that. So when you have the, your friends out there and your other people who are hesitant to even let go at all. They won't dance. They Mm -hmm. won't do anything except drink beer, you know, drink Budweiser. And that's really their only outlet. Like, you know, have a little sympathy for these constructions of the mind and allow them, you know, don't force, don't force them through because that can lead to really bad circumstances as well. Like allow those things to crumble by observing how much, you know, it's affecting you in, in a positive way rather than trying to like, 
shoehorn them through some yeah. ecstatic experience because <laughs> i mean yeah i'm so guilty of that and, and, <laughs> i know yeah. me too i've done that many times <laughs> sometimes it works yeah the, sometimes it's a disaster the, the best cautionary t- label i've heard for that was was one of my mentors he said be, he said jamie be be careful of therapeutic aggression <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. change damn it because yeah. i need you to you know right. versus that's where you are yourself um absolutely yeah so where do you uh you know you talk a little bit about burning man which is a really um, it's an experience where a lot of these different things come together mm-hmm. from sex and music and psychedelics and, and all of these different state shifting, uh, mechanisms, fire. I mean, all of these things that just transfix us. It's so incredibly overwhelming to the uh-huh. senses <laughs> itself. Yeah. Um, you know, where do you see, you know, what do you see for the future of that? I mean, is this, is this going to become integrated more into like because that's a once a year thing and Mm -hmm. then there's a couple other festival type things that happen but Mm -hmm. are we going to start seeing this these type of events trickle more into everyday weekly life like i I always had a vision of the sunday of sunday church being Uh a lot more like a burning man experience you know where you get to you know have ecstasy in Mm -hmm. in your own way yeah um you know on a more weekly basis and i think that goes into your calendaring um, mm-hmm. concept too, which I'd like to bridge in as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay. So, so Burning Man is a social movement. And first of all, like, if you haven't gone, most people's experience of it, you know, most press coverage is one of two things. It's like naked hippies doing drugs in the desert, the kind of salacious side yep. and or star fucking. There was P. Diddy or Katy Perry or a Victoria's Secret model, you know, and, right. and or, or, or Mark Zuckerberg sling, slinging grilled cheeses, right? And so, and in both of those accounts, you completely miss why the hell are people who can get behind any velvet rope in any VIP room anywhere on the planet busting their ass in a hot, dusty desert for a week? Mm. Like, that's just the simple question. Like, why? And so, you know, my, you know, I, I don't think I'm unique in this perspective, but it's arguably the most potent large collective transformational ritual on the planet um, with the exception of maybe Kumela in India, which is what, once every eight years or whenever it is, right? So the, the idea of it being what you were saying, a contemporary you know, mystery cult, right? But mm-hmm. not, not cult in the sense of Manson and John, Jim Jones, but just cult in the sense of you know, a, a, a body of practice around a shared ecstatic experience. Um, that is a very powerful thing and it's spilling over into everything from fashion to Hollywood movies to EDM culture and stage design to a bunch of other things. If you, if you, but now that said, um, if you kind of juxtapose it against like the contemporary megachurch, so sort of evangelical Pentecostal Christian religions that have created these huge communities and they're fully, they're, they're vertically integrated through the week. I mean, it's not just church on the jumbotrons, it's dating and bowling and parenting classes and bookstores and cafes. I mean, they've done an sure. amazing job articulating the needs of their community. So the question is, is, is there a post-conventional ecstatically oriented variant or version or mutation of that? Yeah, that that's the could, question I was asking. That could emerge, right? <laughs> right. Out of that Burning Man initiatory experience. I mean, hopefully, and I mean, honestly, that's what we're doing with our flow dojos and that kind of thing is to create body brain training centers that serve as ecstatic spaces at night, you know, Thursday sure. through Saturday night, Sunday morning, it's liturgical dance and sweat your prayers. So the intention there would be, I think it's ripe. I think it's crazy that it's the most traditional spiritual sort of, you know, um, torch bearers that are the ones that are actually innovating community and scalable community and business and infrastructure mm-hmm. these days. Cause it almost feels like that's always the challenge with it. People who pursue the ecstatic path is they become quite often not that interested in 
the Monday morning. And it's, it's you know, it's the sort of ant on the grasshopper kind of thing, right? And so, yeah. and so the, the studiousness, industriousness, the drive to exert in 3D reality and move matter around and build stuff isn't always as pronounced in the people that are just coming back from the back and beyond. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because there's, there's, I guess also the beauty of Burning Man is there's no cars. So mm-hmm. No one's, I mean, you can drunk bicycle ride, but mm-hmm. remarkably, like I was there and people are blasted on every different compound and you just weave through like, <laughs> like everybody's on self, like, you know, self-driving bicycles. Like, oh, no, yeah. I didn't see any crashes, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, maybe one crash, but it was really remarkable how mm-hmm. together everybody is. And then, and I think it's because alcohol wasn't the predominant drug yeah, of a choice sure. there. I mean, people are sipping on some beers and, mm-hmm. you know, some, we had a big dance circle and all of a sudden somebody gifted us a bottle of Jim Beam underneath our pile of sweatshirts. So uh-huh. we like drank that, but it's not, that's not the main thing. And uh-huh. I think that makes a big difference. But then when you go out to a regular club experience, which mm-hmm. can have the, the music and the sound mm-hmm. and, and everybody's just hammered. Uh, yeah. It's a much different vibe. You For have sure. to guard yourself in a different way, you know, yeah. whereas in Burning Man, I can be totally relaxed and free and trust that no matter how many beautiful half naked girls I'm with, I'm not going to have to fight anybody off. I'm nobody's yeah. going to come, you know, and I'm going to have to be silverback and say, uh-huh. don't yeah. you come over yeah, yeah. here, rah, you know, which happens at the clubs when there's that alcohol charged environment where For people sure. are hammered and they, don't know their boundaries and they get aggressive and it's just uh it's difficult to find and even in you know even in raves and stuff like that there's a blending Mm -hmm. in a lot of these places that you just don't see at burning man and i think that's part of that is the choice that they made for such a remote fucking place yeah and and also the the i think there's a couple of things that help that so it's clearly which substances dictate which channels of consciousness people are on yeah. and 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 alcohol i would say is pretty much low i mean it's associated with all sorts of obvious stupid shit like date rapes and everything else and aggression and blah yeah. blah blah so take that out of the equation largely and you're going to have a different vibe take but the other thing that's i think super interesting about the place is the decommodification meaning we don't do brands so people don't wear clothes they don't have you know even rvs get pasted over whether it says u-haul or whatever so the idea is like we're essentially doing you know people are doing their collective best to remove the super ego or yeah. the social norms. And and then you come into a place where the architecture is completely off the charts. You're like, wait, this could be like fifth century, like like desert throwdown, or this could be the 25th century, like Starship Academy. I can't tell which, right? And so that sort of, you know, you're, you're there on the corner of everyone and never was, and your super egoic identity structures of what brands do I wear and what tribe is mine, all this kind of are just blown to the wind. And then everybody, instead of the super ego, the oughts and the shoulds, the norms are actually deliberately inhabiting archetypal versions of themselves. So here's my, here's my name for the week that's completely different than my regular name. And here's my costuming and here's how I'm going to show up. And that gives people, I think, permission, especially combined with repeat ecstatic experiences that they're sampling throughout the week to come back from those states and then actually get into their muscle memory playing archetypal theater with a bunch of other people who are all on the same jam, right, <laughs> is, is, is significantly different than just shooting the moon at the club one night. Yeah. Right. And getting in your fancy car or your Uber and going home and waking up in the morning and going, oh shit, what, you know, I, who spilled the beer and, you know, on right. the couch. Right. right. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a really, it's something that I think we could all benefit from cultivating more of those environments. Cause I remember I recently just had a, had a dinner party where I tried to cultivate that mm-hmm. in, at the house. And I have a beautiful house for that. But the problem is we had, we had so this fire troop come in, they're mm-hmm. fire dancers and, 
um, they were putting on a fire show outside. It's like 10 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. you know, but they were playing music outside through their speakers as they were doing their fire show. Yeah. And 10.30 p.m., knock, 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 <laughs> cops at the door. Oh. You know, right? And it's like, it's just, it's hard to find. Even when you're cultivating that environment, mm-hmm. it's like the, the rules of the regular world, mm-hmm. you know, can kind of impinge and, and find you. And I think creating spaces where, that are safe, like Burning Man, yep. And creating laws and, and ideals where cops aren't the antagonists of ecstasis. Mm-hmm. They're there to help keep you safe from people yeah. who are looking to make you unsafe. Yeah. You know, and I think so as the laws change, as the cultural norms change, I think that'll open up a lot more possibility where the real world, you know, and then the current moray of, of culture doesn't kind of impinge upon what you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, when it, when it happens effortlessly, it seems almost uh, unavoidable. It's yeah. just like here we are back in the back in the honey, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is this is the good shit, and then you realize, oh, this is actually still volatile, yeah. um, subject to all kinds of outside disturbances and and even threats. It, not everybody's down with the thing that's about to happen or is going on, and you have to both kind of keep your wits and your tits about you. You can't you can't you know lose your bearings, and you have to as free and effortless as it can all feel. That this is a game for mortal stakes. It's not like it's not like hobbits were the only ones interested in the one ring of power. You know, we're playing right, right. we're playing a big game. Yeah, I mean, because when that happens, then at that point, I have to close. I have to create another layer where yep. I can't let go. Exactly. Like, okay, now cops are on the game board. You got to be bounding the space. You got to you know, be a little so, bit more on. So I'm doing my best to take that burden on myself, so the rest of the people can be free at oh, least. Yeah. Oh yeah. But nonetheless, it it just changes the dynamic. Where at Burning Man, there's just there's none of that you know it's just like everybody especially me who was always looking out for people you just know that everybody's going to be all right like there's that saying the playa will provide mm-hmm. like it will like you can totally lose somebody in the middle of the fucking <laughs> desert they'll find their way to somebody oh yeah I mean, worst, worst case scenario is they fucking wash up against the trash fence they have no idea what fuck <laughs> happened to them they've gone into a deep dive womb like belly of the whale and then yeah. the sun fucking comes up and the first place they find towards civilization is the temple yeah. And I mean, I wish that experience for everybody. Like all my friends, like my experience is like 2 a.m. I just wish I could teleport everyone I love to, to right here in the middle and just be like, just check this fucking out for 15 <laughs> minutes and realize there's no playbook. And yeah. this is all self-organizing emergence. You know, like the, I, I wish that for fucking everyone. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk about the calendaring because I yeah. think that's a cool point to make to how to make this, bring this into your life. So, so yeah. talk to us about that piece. It's very practical. Sure. So, I mean, you know, this is what we would call the hedonic calendar, which is basically just the art of sort of fine tuning and scheduling your buzz right through the year. And, and the reason, just to kind of back it up, um, there was a great book by a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, New York Times journalist called Salt, Sugar, Fat a couple of years ago. And he was basically saying, hey, the food industry has hacked those three, those three flavors, salty, saltiness, sweetness, and fat. Um, and that's why we have TGI Fridays and the Cheesecake Factory and these 1500 calorie gut bombs and Krispy Kreme bacon cheeseburgers and that kind of thing. And, you know, each of those were completely rare and novel taste sensations for almost all of human history. And, you know, salt was an essential mineral. You had to get it or you'd die. Mm-hmm. Um, sweetness was berries and honey and very rare and perishable fats. Again, super perishable. You know, you got nuts and, and meat fat and all those kind of things. So anytime we came across them for all of human history, the signal in our brains was get as much as you can while you can. Yeah. Right. Now we have all, we have all the big food conglomerates just dialing that in and we can't help ourselves. We literally can't help ourselves. So we know 70% of American men and 33% of American kids are now obese. That's fucked up. We spent more on diet products for our pets 
than we do on you know, on developing nation food aid. Sure. Right. So we've we've completely gone off the rails with those needs. So back to food, you know, food, water and sex as, as our drivers. Same same with online streaming pornography. And to your point about not having to play the silverback, when has a te- pimply faced teenage boy had access to unlimited sexually available mates, even digitally? You know, like never. So it's yeah, so a whole different rabbit hole. For yeah, sure. Whole different we used to hole. have to you know, we would be sharing magazines that somebody yeah. would borrow, steal, yeah. fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. somehow get from some random source. Or you know? sat in the shadows watching the alphas get them all, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> you know <laughs> your whole life, right? So so when we've taken off the natural checks and balances of, of access to these things, including ecstatic states, yeah. right? We have to realize it's important to put additional checks and balances in. Otherwise, we just go off the rails. Yep. So, you know, again, access to these pleasurable states, precipitating them in the past was super rare. It was often confined to a priest class or a shaman class. I mean, not everybody got lit. Wasn't there, to this point, wasn't there some uh, so, some study that someone did, maybe it was John Lilly, who mm. allowed a baboon to experience orgasm after orgasm? It was the rhesus monkeys. Yeah, it was Lilly. The, the, yeah. yeah. the rhesus monkeys. And they so he opened up some kind of button they could press to orgasm? Yes. Yeah, basically he did He did sleeve guides into their brain down to their sexual pleasure centers. And he, he, he realized, I mean, this was back in the early 50s he realized ahead of anybody that ejaculation erection and orgasm are all distinct neural circuits so that's a newbie right yeah. so, and that's also cool for like future training if you're interested but he also realized okay now give left to their own devices a male rhesus monkey will stimulate the orgasm lever 18 hours a day will crash out for six hours wake <laughs> back up and go straight back at it like that's all he'll do he's totally good with that and so that actually became you know that became a uh, cia they were looking to use co-op that for brain you know for mind control <laughs> just um, give people the orgasm button and, and then stop and then fighting. take it away pump fake pump fake what do you want to tell me tell me tell me what you need to do right i mean so so yeah so that idea is once we have access to this stuff which we do at like at this point in time we can blow ourselves sky high yeah. seven ways to sunday and so the question is what do we do about that and how do we manage and mitigate it and in the past right there were sort of right hand paths those were the orthodox paths thou shalt and thou shalt not and they were guided for the lowest common denominator of society so if some dumbass would fuck it up doing this we have to put a rule thou shalt not yeah. Right. The left hand path, the tantric path, all those kind of things were always for a very elect few. And it was the fastest path to waking up with the lowest success rate. Because it was like, you know, like breaking the sticks off bottle rockets and still hoping they go where you point them. Right. Mm-hmm. And but they were but it's a very potent path, which was basically saying it, you know, if it feels good, do it. And and so the question is, is how do we incorporate the techniques and technologies that used to be left hand path, right? All the ecstatic practices without putting it in the ditch. Yeah. And so the hedonic calendaring is basically saying, hey, stack rank everything you choose to do, ranging from your daily supportive plateau practices like yoga and flossing your teeth and sitting for 15 minutes with you know, a brain FM or a meditation practice or whatever it would be that's just generally positive and you can't do too much of generally unless you're like OCD, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then say, okay, now I want to build up that foundation. But the ring the bell moments right? Whether that's getting high and making love to your partner, whether that's going out and dancing, whatever, you know, whether it's, you know, a mountaineering expedition, some ultra marathon, whatever it would be, take your pick of a passana retreat. Um, how often can I reliably put those into my life where they are positive and they're not discombobulating? Yeah. Right. And so that's when you think of what do I do once a week? Think to reclaim the Sabbath, right? Have half a day once a week that is dedicated to optimal vitality, well-being, and insight. Once a month, give it a full day. Once a quarter, give it a weekend. And once a year, give it a week. And that's kind of your classic kind of bucket list sort of goals. And you can basically put all of your ecstatic practices, figure out how positive are they, how risky are they, how expensive are they in every way, and then put them in those right categories. And then you have a chance to kind of create 
a, like a flywheel, like a, like a potter kicking the wheel and it starts mm -hmm. spinning and builds up momentum and then you can throw a pot with that momentum. It's kind of like if I can stay connected to my ecstatic self via discipline practice, then I can build momentum towards burning off, right? And transforming who I am. Now the kicker there is that you put all that, you actually start getting momentum going and it can get fast in a hurry, faster than you'd think if you were just erratically stop starting, stop starting. So the other part of the hedonic calendar is how do you know if you're actually kidding yourself, including your practice partners? Because if you've got a couple of buddies or you've got a romantic yeah. partner and you're all in it together, you might kid each other. You, we might be totally codependent enablers. So you can't always trust that the people around you are keeping a clear head. And that's either. why you mentioned the hedonic fasts. Exactly. You know, taking a time. And I remember I did one of those through a South American spiritual practice called a dieta, where uh -huh. you meditate yeah, yeah. with a certain plant. Yeah. And you're not even supposed to, not only you're not supposed to eat any foods that taste good, everything's super bland. Uh -huh. You're not even supposed to, not only not supposed to have sex or masturbate, you're not even supposed to think or dream about sex or masturbating or think or dream about yeah. these foods, spicy foods or anything. So it just removes all elements and yes. you can just sit with yourself. It's an incredibly powerful experience, but that's, I think, a really great check and balance there is like, can you let it all go? Can yes. you give it all up yep. and then find your, make sure you really hone in, bring all of that giant circumference that you've built that yes that gravity hone it all back into the center the tightest centrifugal force like like you said throwing a wheel form it back down to that original lump of clay that's perfectly balanced and is not spinning and shooting water <laughs> and dirt yeah. everywhere and then from there you know rebuild it back up and i think that's an important important message yeah and, and and ultimately i mean that notion of forbearance or abstinence like do the lent thing do the rom you know ramadan or yom kippur like leverage off existing cultural traditions make your own new year's back to school whatever the hell it is but do 30 days cold turkey and that's coffee chocolate whatever you're all of it yeah right everything that you just have routinely in your life and just watch how twitchy you get right and that's a new data set and then you don't play the game because most people, when the, if they start even unintentionally like cobbling together a kind of ecstatic or sort of guerrilla tantra kind of life, they're like, hey, let's cultivate this stuff and let's learn and grow. Very few people do it with structure and it almost always ends up going over the edges someplace. Yeah. They get high too much. They fuck too much. They get twisted. There's just something that gets out of balance. And so for most people, when they go out of balance, they're like, ooh. And then all the social conditioning and all the guilt and shame patterns kick back. And they're like, we should stop this. I need to go cold turkey. And then they don't because some intuitive part of themselves like, but there's real value here. And so a month later or a week later or a year later, they come back to it. And they're in this constant and this, tug and pull. Exactly. Yeah. So right where the crucible was heating up to be interesting and was actually going to potentially burn off a layer right, of tar, they actually turn down the heat. And then they turn on the heat and they turn off the heat. So instead, if you do that abstinence thing, then the question is not should I or shouldn't I? It's just, do I move it to the left or the right on my calendar? Mm -hmm. So now I get to steer while keeping my wits about me, acknowledging the excesses, acknowledging the close calls, but I'm not like, I'm not second guessing the entire project every time things get hairy. Yeah. I remember, you know, I studied classical philosophy and there is, mm. you know, there's obviously the Stoic school, which yeah. people know a lot about, but then there's the Epicurean school, uh -huh. which people sometimes confuse for pure hedonism, which sure. is just seeking as much pleasure as you can at mm -hmm. all points. But they actually really did this they calendarized it and realized that if they were getting drunk and having orgies all the time they would be hung over and the pleasure mm -hmm. of that experience would diminish over time like, yeah. like what jason silva says hedonic tolerance uh -huh. would set in and yeah. these things would become less pleasurable plus they'd have to experience the displeasure of the hangover which would counterbalance the overall pleasure of their life that they would experience so yeah. most of the life of an epicurean was 
eating fairly simply, having mm-hmm. a glass of wine, reading in their garden, getting some sun, going for walks, exercising, these things that are generally healthy practices, these daily practices. And then every once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, that classic moderation in moderation, yeah. every once in a while they blow it out yeah. and just have a fucking crazy night and trying to reach the the peak of that ecstatic state. And I've always, you know, found that that was something that I could, you know, resonate with as well. Most of the time, eat clean, do it, you know, yeah. keep it together so that I can enjoy the everyday experience of life. And then every once in a while, let's see if we can shoot the moon. Exactly. You know, let's see, let's see what kind of stars we can wrangle in, in hyperspace. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's that contrast. I mean, it's, it's the same with like, most folks are just stuck in, in distress. They're in just kind of a fibrillating state of kind of mm-hmm. constantly on, constantly off, never really clearly zero or focused. And the idea is like, knock that shit out, get into deep recovery and foundational practice. And then you stress the positive stress, right? Of the peak experience, the real challenge, whatever that would be. And so, I mean, even again, I mean, even in sort of Burning Man community or whatever, I'm, I'm baffled by how many people do a whole bunch of substances weak, in weak quantities and often contraindicated in combinations with each yeah. other. And you're like, well, what are you doing? Like, why are you all, like every weekend you're doing a little bit of Molly and a little bit of K and a little bit of this and a little bit of weed and a little <laughs> bit of that. And then the late night, maybe a little bit of blow if someone has something like, and like no one's getting anywhere interesting ever, Yeah, but they're taking the toll on their chassis. So it's like, why not be like, live like a monk for nine months? And then, like you said, go shoot the goddamn moon and remember what you saw. Hell yeah. (laughs) Everybody, I can't more strongly recommend a book than this one. Stealing Fire, fucking awesome. And Stephen Kotler, and you wrote it. Stephen Kotler's great. Definitely follow his work as well. Um, How can people keep up with you besides just reading this book and going to, I think there's a website associated too, right? Yeah, so the book is just stealingfirebook.com. And then our larger organization where we kind of put this on the ground in online trainings and real life events, uh, skiing, kite surfing, mountain biking, plus neuroscience and practice is uh, flowgenomeproject.com. Beautiful. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for putting this out in the world. Be safe. Have fun. Love each other. <laughs> Let's all make this place a better place to live, everybody. Awesome. Thanks for coming by, brother. Thanks, Harvey. Yeah.